And I, I say a student will learn and a teacher will teach. Let your fire burn brightly a little in each. Never be so far down on your own road of thought that your thinking be found to think true what is not. Nor think yourself sage and pontificate much about this book or page or some old such and such. So have fire for each, yet the greatest of fears is one day you'll preach having not lifted in years. Stay thirsty, my friends. Keep those calluses bright. Practice what you preach if you wish to be right. Welcome, Leg Tuck Nation. We got a good one for you tonight, Alex. What's coming down? This one's uh, personally exciting for me. I've known him for a while. But Coach Mark Taysom has been involved in the combination of sports medicine and human performance for more than two decades. It, the range of positions he's held and populations he's worked with is extremely broad. He's, he's taught in university settings. He's coached in professional sports settings. He's worked in everything from senior care to high schools, to Olympic training centers, to now the tactical population. It's, it's a pretty wide breadth of experience and he's just an extremely passionate coach, no matter who he's coaching. Uh, he currently serves as the H2F program director for 10th Combat Aviation Brigade up at Fort Drum in the North Country. Um, but Mark is also an accomplished athlete in his own right with numerous strongman championships under his belt. Um, if you're ever up at Fort Drum, you can catch him moving some, some heavy, heavy weight in the gym, but probably while wearing like bright pink corduroys and a fanny pack usually. Um, Mark has been a mentor to me personally for a while. And if I had not crossed paths with him at Fort Carson when I was a lieutenant, I, I certainly would not be doing any of what I'm doing today. And this was a really fun conversation to have because it, it mirrors a lot of the conversations I've had with him unrecorded. And he, he brings his full personality to this conversation, just like every other. I think he might take the award for most wisdom dropped in a podcast episode. And Alex warned me about this a little bit coming into the conversation with Mark. And the reason we called this episode, the Dr. Seuss of strength, because of like the absolute Yoda quips that Mark drops. I thought when we got started, it was going to be like one or two, but you'll see by the end of this, like he riffs, like it felt like we were in a rap song at parts because he just drops the best knowledge bombs in the coolest way possible you'll definitely end up taking some notes and you'll probably find yourself repeating some of these things so it is a fun one uh enjoy dude we get we get the same chat but it's usually about helicopters and stuff from bragg which is i mean from where i'm sitting it's probably 25 30 miles and still people what is that loud noise when the artillery goes off or the helicopters <laughs> And some idiot always answers like, that's the sound of freedom. Like you should appreciate it. But that happens probably once or twice a month. Yeah. The, the questions and the answers become very predictable in those type of forums. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, Mark, you lived in Colorado Springs when I was there. They like the, those people used to complain all the time. If there was any like major exercise going on on Fort Carson. Yeah. The, the very thing that feeds their town and keeps yeah. it alive. <laughs> <laughs> So like, wait, hold on. So you were in Gilbert. You've, you've been around. Where did you start? Start my life was Mesa, Arizona. That's where I was born. <laughs> start, <laughs> uh, start the, the, the career. It depends on how you define start. You know, I haven't, I've been doing this or this type of work ever since I can possibly remember. I'm 14 years old and I'm assistant soccer coach, you know, so. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, 
it's been something in the DNA. I don't know. It's a, a disease. I can't shake it, but I welcome it. How long have you been in the tactical space? Uh, in the, from 2010, when I went to Fort Carson, that's when I was completely immersed in that tactical world. But right. as with most strength coaches, the, the tactical people have been seeking out professionals for quite a bit. So you'll get them in onesie, twosies and small groups, you know, beforehand in the sporting world, uh, before the army made a big push towards uh, enhancing their tactical fitness. So you would, you'd get them periodically. Uh, but as far as being immersed in it, that was 2010 when I went to Fort Carson. Okay. The, the Iron Horse Performance Optimization Program, which they affectionately called IHOP. So the pancake people. Yeah, that's why I always call it tactical athlete program still, because that has a better ring to it than IHOP. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I know Colonel Casales was was talking about naming it TAP, and I was like, you know, he can name it whatever he wants. We're just going to rock it, you know. So if he thought that was a better marketing name, he wanted to put a stamp on it. You know, you got to let the, the, the colonel put his, his stamp on it because then he's behind it. And, uh, you know, you need their their assistance and help. And he was a, a great asset to that program. He was uh, definitely an engine behind it. So we'll, we'll be tap all day long. Wait, what? So, okay. Because I'm sitting here trying to disentangle IHOP, Iron Horse. It, it was actually IH Pop. Yeah, I was going to say Iron Horse. Iron yeah. Horse Performance Optimization Program. It, but they it, just called it IHOP. Hip hop, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> hey, it, it worked, you know. Uh, that's how we were introduced uh, technically, and then informally, we were always tapped to everybody else. Tactical athlete program. Yeah, my guys, my soldiers always knew it as tap. I don't think they yeah. called it anything else. Yeah, I actually had a soldier come up to me today and say, "Hey, weren't you at Fort Carson for like 2012?" I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, you you looked familiar." So it's nice to know I haven't aged out of my own identity yet. So. <laughs> pretty good you're still able to recognize me this is me being unfamiliar with the early army days as as i am with the air force that was so was this what group was this with at fort carson uh we were a division asset uh we were kind of assigned to third brigade assigned to second brigade first and they were getting deployed and then third brigade and a little bit first brigade so we kind of we in a sense, we stayed put, but whatever brigade was coming to us was dependent upon who was deployed, who was in garrison. Mm. Uh, so we were just kind of shuffled around uh, through our program. So that's kind of how that went down is just kind of a precursor to these H2F programs to uh, demonstrate that holistic approach is the, the way to go and that it can function at the brigade level. That was the big question. They also proved something that I am continuously trying to get other people to prove, which is that you can do it all day. Right. They, they just had like a thing and you signed up for like a, an hour time block for your company size organization. And you came in at whatever time that was. Sometimes that was during PT. Sometimes that was not during PT and at a random different time of day. I still remember there was like a chart on the wall for like when you should eat breakfast and when you should snack based on the time you were signed up for training and stuff. And like people were coming in and out all day. It's totally possible. Yeah. yeah it, it works. And it has a huge impact. Uh, you don't have to, have the soldiers constant attention Monday through Friday all the time in order to be impactful because they're going to take what they learned that day and they're going to automatically apply it to their next day's training, next day's training, the things that they learned. So we, we tried to give them what I call keys that would never rust, you know, things that would, uh, you know, nuggets of wisdom that travel in pockets, you know what I mean? So they could take it to the next day and be like, Hey, we learned this yesterday. I can apply it right now as well, rather than just things that were very localized. You want to be, able to travel so that was kind of the 
the impetus behind that was the drive and influence was to give them things that travel well. I guess we kind of pick things and exercises like your wife might choose her wedding gown. You know, you look for qualities that wear well over time. So whatever had the greatest traveling distance, that's what we tried to employ. Okay, I'm going to break the fourth wall and speak directly to the listeners for a second. I was going to say, you're over here just like smiling ear to ear because of these just zingers. If, about if you are keeping track at home, there have been two <laughs> Markisms so far. One was keys that never rust and one was qualities that wear well. And I'm excited for this episode because you're going to get like a thousand Markisms over the course of it. And every one of them belongs in your notebook because it's solid gold and you can, <laughs> you can take it to the bank. <laughs> Well, since you, so you guys have a history, I'll come at this as the naive third party and I'll throw out an easy one. What is, I suppose, Alex, to your memory, what is the, the all-time favorite Markism, if there is one? Ooh, I don't... What sticks? I, I, I put a few... I, I don't know if I can name a number one because like that, it's, it changes every time I meet Mark and he drops another one because I, I had some that I loved from back in the day. And then we went up to Fort Drum and visited them. And I wrote down like three or four more that I had never heard before that were absolutely fantastic. So I don't, I don't think it, it does justice to pick one, but what I, what I will do is set up Mark for some more and say that we didn't, we didn't really set a topic for this conversation beforehand, but a question I've received several times this week that I think Mark might be a great person to start the conversation on is we have an easy time engaging the soldiers who already care about fitness, right? And there's a trap of if we like invest more in their performance, we're just going to like help that same top 10% get better and better and better and leave everybody else behind who's not engaging with it proactively. How do we make this stuff appealing to people for whom it does not come naturally? Well, that's the, that's the art of giving permission. You know, when people ask what I do for a living, I say I give people permission to be their better selves. Uh, the way I look at it is everybody's interested in better health. It's just they don't understand the cost and they don't understand the direction. And so in, engaging that person and a couple of things is generally just the coach's time with that individual is enough to crack the code. Usually the individual doesn't want to do isn't interested in fitness because they feel they don't belong. That generally tends to be the number one rule. So a, a way a coach can connect you got to connect before you can correct you got to you know reach them before you teach them type of thing so how you connect with an, a soldier or an athlete of any kind is your number one skill as, as a coach because you can have all the brains behind you but it's not going to stick and I, I don't think that coaches practice connection as much as they practice facts and door the explorer program maps and periodization uh, but they don't really focus in on those soft skills so those soft skills, what we call a, what I call a vor, which is if you just value the individual and you offer them something of value, like why they should care. And then the R is for return appointment, because just like dating, you know, if you go on a first date and she's like, Hey, Hey, thanks. That was great. See you later. And there's no like response to a second date. Hey, we should go out again, anything like that. Then, you know, the date didn't go very well. So sometimes that return appointment is a missing piece that a lot of coaches forget when they speak to soldiers. They just give them information. Uh, they give them a high five. They value them, whatever it might be. They demonstrate that. But that return appointment that is so crucial, that capstone is, is often the neglected piece. So reminding them that they are, that they belong here and that they're welcome back here uh, is, is the crucial point, I think. And 
I think everybody loves, loves fitness. That's something that has come up more than once, depending on guests that we've kind of brought on and talked to is this idea of like the soft skills taking priority over the hard skills and coaches seem to have this mentality, at least from what I've seen in the tactical space of like, because we are here, we being any embedded program, pick your acronym, like, because we're here, soldiers, airmen, whatever should come to us. And if they don't come to us, it's because they have some flaw, not because our program or our personalities or our approach has some flaw. And so it's interesting to hear that message kind of hit home over and over and over again, that like, it's on you as the kind of embedded specialist outsider quote unquote to create the relationship and drive the relationship right i mean as a coach you got to create not only the 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 need for your services you got to create they may not see the value so you have to create that value show them that need and then provide that that service that they're looking for but that's really the hallmark of a good coach is the extent of the variety the person they can reach you know i I hear coaches all the time be like uh I like to train these types of people. And anytime they specify, usually they're just pigeonholing their own expertise, saying these are the only people I am able to reach. Uh, so I've heard it a bunch of times like, oh, that guy, he's, he doesn't care about fitness. He's old school. He's this. We label that individual. And we label that individual as a justification of our inability to reach them rather than step back and say, wow, how come I can't reach that person? So the way I look at it is like, Everybody says, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I say, yeah, well, I can put salt in his oats. You know, so how do you salt the oats and make them want it? And that's the true art um, because you, you don't have to have the best program to get great results, especially with soldiers that are 18 to 22 years old, the most adaptive time in human history for them. You can give them a, a terrible program. They're still going to adapt to some extent and progress. Now, there's optimal and suboptimal, but they'll progress. So that the whole point is, how do you salt the oats and make them want it? I was just looking at some some basic training data, and it's honestly astonishing how much adaptation is capable in like a sufficiently untrained person who's coming into something for the very first time. It is we're talking about average. We're talking about like a ten day period where the average person coming through, not ten day, ten week period where the average person coming through loses four to five pounds of fat and gains four pounds of muscle. That's outrageous. Like if, if people like that were already trained could achieve numbers remotely like that, we'd be seeing some freaks walking around. Like this, like you said, it's, it's the perfect time in their life to like adapt massively as long as you throw anything mildly productive at them. But it's, I think people, people worry a lot about getting the details right for the people who are already doing it. And they don't worry enough about getting people who aren't doing it to do anything at all. And I, I, I was reflecting on the exact same thing. Cause when you're at the gym, you'll like, you'll see people doing something crazy and something probably not the smartest and things like that. And it's easy to be like, man, like, I wish we could get that person doing something right. But the bigger picture is at least they're at the gym doing something. There's a whole ton of people who aren't doing it at all. And those are the people we actually need to impact. Yeah, these are some of the fundamental shifts. So a coach, which is real popular nowadays, is we, we leverage fear as justification for our job. We say, oh, if you do that, you're going to get hurt. Oh, scary. Uh, why are we leveraging fear? Why don't we leverage performance? Well, say if somebody saw somebody doing something that's a little less, less ideal, and sure, maybe there is an increased risk of injury with that particular movement pattern or, or however they're doing it, but is that really the right approach? And the answer is no, fear is never the answer. So rather than go to that person and say, hey, you're going to get hurt, therefore do it this way. 
what if I said, hey, I read this research and it said that if we go like this, that it improves vertical jump after about 12 weeks by an inch and a half. And you look like you could really, like you're about ready to dunk, you know, what if we did that? You want to try that? Now he's curious because there's, there's hope of an outcome that's within his reach. And I steer him away from that, that technique that may have been risky. And I don't cultivate the seeds of fear in his brain at all. And if you cultivate enough fear and all he hears every time he goes in is the coach said, Hey, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Pretty soon people avoid pain. So if they start to perceive the gym and training as something that they're going to get hurt, then they're going to one self inhibit either consciously or subconsciously. And they're going to inhibit to the point where they completely avoid training. And then we've, we've kind of just wasted our whole efforts. So generally fear speech is sometimes how a novice coach will leverage his, his understanding. He doesn't know how to sell it. He doesn't know how it equates to performance. He hasn't been training long enough to see. He himself maybe has no calluses. And so he leverages fear in order to gain leverage over that person. But uh, utilizing fear, not a good tactic. You want to utilize performance and steer it towards a privilege and a performance aspect. I tell people like proper action, hope is the father of proper action. Here's an example. If I said right now to, to a class of students, I said, hey, Right now, there is a hidden treasure in this state. They would stand there and they'd smile and nod. I say, okay, now there's a hidden treasure in this city. They'd smile and nod. If I said, there's a hidden treasure in this building, they'd kind of look at you strange. Then I said, there's a hidden treasure underneath your chair. All of them are going to go down and look. And, and what was the difference? I, I didn't lie on either one. The difference was when they believed that the joy, the reward was within their grasp, they were moved to action automatically. That's hope. They actually hoped that they could, there was evidence that they could receive the reward and therefore they moved to action. So really it's, it's not discipline that people need to keep them going to the gym. It's hope. And I don't think people realize that they, they crap on discipline all the time and say, Oh, you just need more discipline, you need more discipline, man. You have to have more hope. If you actually hope to receive, you're going to be moved to action. And so that's one of the things is how can I bring performance to within the reach of every individual, individuals that are high performers, individuals that don't even care about training. Can I put that reward close enough to them that they are moved to action? Can I move them? That's, that's influence. So trying to learn how to foster hope um, is, is probably the fundamental skill. I'm really happy you got there on your own. Cause as soon as you said a couple minutes ago, like hope for an outcome within your reach. I was hoping the buried treasure one was coming. And I'm very pleased that we got there. <laughs> well, I, I, you can utilize that in such a, a, a visual demonstration. When you do that in the classroom, you're always going to get a student to look. And so you have to be honest. I, I, I usually tape a $5 bill under somebody's chair, you know, and then it's like, hey, there's your buried treasure. Um, so that's another thing. Another thing you brought up, which is also a fundamental change just in the, in the realm of physical fitness is, Young coaches, there's a lot of them. So there's a lot of noise and voice. And there, I, there's more voices for novice coaches than there is for experienced coaches. So sometimes the noise of novice can really drown out the, the decibels of decades of experience. So how do you find the experienced voices in the midst of all the tumultuous noise? And what's interesting is that the noise that comes from novices is usually they're just parroting research. And um, research is usually on a 10 to 12 week, 16 week you know, type of thing that follows an academic schedule. And the problem is, is that they usually try to maximize the stimulus in order that they are certain to find an outcome. And so the, the question everybody always asks is, what's the most I could do? How do I maximize my performance outcomes? How do I get 
the biggest bench press in the shortest amount of time. And the sporting world feeds that. You know, the combines in a few months, this is in a few months, world championships in a few months. We're always trying to ramp the red line and peak just a little, peak just a little. Uh, but that doesn't, that's not a recipe for longevity at all. That's a real short-term goal. That's a short-term outlook on things. But we know that he that lifts the longest gets the strongest, you know, so we got to stay stay in the game. The question that should be asked is what's the least that I have to do that moves the needle of progress? Because that is more likely to be achieved by those that are lacking maybe willpower. But when, when they hear all this volume and all these sprints and all these two-a-days and all this stuff that they think they need to do, it's very daunting to somebody that doesn't really desire it to begin with. But really sit back and ask a coach, say, hey, what's the least you have to do? Because the way I look at it is like vitamins, right? You have the least effective dose, but then you also have the upper limit of a vitamin. And there's a huge gap between those things. So there's an amount of vitamin C that I need to survive. And then there's an amount of vitamin C that becomes toxic. And there's a huge gap. Well, it's the same with exercise. Yeah, there's an amount of exercise that becomes too much. It's overtraining. It's damage causing. It's whatever. It's fatiguing to the CNS. But then there's this base level that moves the needle of progress. And everybody just wants to know where the upper limit is. How much can I do? How much can I do? Well, that's a little strange, right? It's like, well, why don't we just say where this is? And then maybe we can sustain that a lot longer. Maybe that's more enjoyable than always just max in the red line, you know? And as you get stronger, you realize you, you're not going hard in the gym all the time anyways. What would you say, because I think that's kind of an inflection point that maybe a more experienced coach realizes after a number of years, you know, what really matters and how to really navigate things. But I go back to kind of thinking of myself in the first couple of years of coaching and depending on the environment, you're, you're sort of measured by maximal performance. Like what are the outcomes? Are you pushing the needle? Are you driving guys like right to the brink? So I guess the question here is how would you go about explaining maybe to a young coach to get after and measure the things that you just mentioned are what really matters when it doesn't necessarily reflect itself as nicely on a leaderboard or some other kind of arbitrary metric that we come up with that tends to lead down that path of pushing volume, pushing intensity. Uh, well, with athletes, it's really about is your, and soldiers too, is it about, are they deployable? Can they be on the field? You know, so that's number one. So reinforcing that, like, Hey, we've been training. And you're still capable of being on the field, but it's also about finding more subtle aspects of, of progress for them. You know, sometimes we measure too much. We measure by the pound. We're adding 10 pounds to the bench, 15 pounds to the bench. And our, our tests and our assessments that we do are not sensitive enough to actually see progress. You know, the body will progress every day. If we had the sensitive enough equipment to see that, we would see that. So we need to, to devise some more sensitive eyes and sensitive assessments to see the progress because everybody's motivated with progress. So even if he got seven more pounds on his bench press, not 10, is that still enough to give him confidence going in? And then also, does a heavier bench press equate to better performance? You know, just because somebody's a little stronger in the weight room doesn't mean that it's going to transfer over to the sport that they're playing or the activity or the MOS that they have. So you also have to talk about transferable gains. You know, does this transfer? How much of an improvement do we have to have in the weight room before we really start to manifest it out on the, on the field? Uh, but really, you're just continuing to foster hope in that individual. And, uh, they don't, it doesn't take much to have them foster some hope, but it has to be certain. And so they got to have that relationship of trust with you. So, you know, it's that conversation happens early. You know, they come in and say, Hey, I want to, I want to do this MOS. I want to go to Ranger school. I want to go to 160th. I want to do this or that. First question I ask them is 
what do you think you physically have to be like to be successful there? And see what their standards for themselves are. They might say, oh, I won't be successful to have a 300-pound bench press. And then you can talk them off the ledge and be like, well, I've seen it without a 300-pound bench press. So why do you have to have a 300-pound bench press? And you kind of get to the root of their problems because they're hinging their success. I mean, ultimately, you realize you're dealing with people's mentalities. It is mental barriers, not physical ones, that a coach is always up against. And so learning how to identify what those mental barriers are on that individual uh, is is usually the, the, the number one priority. So once you can get them to have a, a cohesiveness or agree with you on what's required and what's not required, then that's when the conversation can really happen. I'll tell you too, and this comes back to like, whatever you measure becomes the goal and it wasn't always the goal in the first place. And maybe we need to evaluate what we're, what we're really targeting is the outcomes that we're looking for. But, and, and for background, if it hasn't been like made clear, when I was a lieutenant, Mark, I was at Fort Carson where Mark was running his program. We participated in it. And I know the whole time I was a platoon leader, Thursday was the day that we took the company I was in to the tap gym to do your stuff. And we didn't, we didn't really do a whole lot of assessment, reassessment stuff. I didn't know what the guys one rep maxes were before. So there was no real thing to compare them to afterwards. I'm, I was getting stronger. They were probably getting stronger, but we weren't spending a whole lot of time measuring and tracking it. But what I can tell you is that Thursday was all of their favorite day of the week because it was tap day. And frankly, that matters more to me than their one rep max squat and how much it's changing because they're going to tap. Just the fact that they look forward to that day because of that program, that's, that's more valuable than what they can lift to me as a platoon leader for that organization, honestly. And I would say that's probably more value in pretty much any conventional military setting, just making guys care, making guys excited, giving them something to look forward to. Yeah. It goes a long ways that way. You know, everybody thinks you got to be angry to lift and it's like, no, no enthusiasm, lift and joy. You know, like I say, lift and crescendo. That's what you want. You want everything to come, all your emotions and intellect, but in a positive state and apply that positive energy in, into the training. And so then it, it can't, it, it can't fail to produce results. Um, that's why you know, one of the things we track. So I don't track much as far as the numbers, because you, once you know it works, there's no need to keep tracking it to prove it to others. I'm not in the state of, of, of proving it to others because you kind of let others speak on your own behalf. You know, they'll tell you it's working. And the one number we do track is, is how many, uh, in our case, how many soldiers come through our door because uh, they're not on command or orders to come through our door. So that just lets you know, do they believe it's working? You know, when you got 3,000 soldiers coming through your door of one facility, well, they're not coming for, you know, for the party. They're coming because they feel that something is working. Intuitively, they know something's working. And it is. And that's the thing. You just want to bring them in. It's that field of dreams mentality, right? You build it, they'll come. I wonder about that a lot, too, because we have... We have a lot of like leadership in the tactical space that seems to wish their program was mandatory because a lot of these are like at will kind of programs wherever you go, like police stations, fire stations, military units, whatever. It's kind of up to them whether they participate in it in a lot of cases. Some, some cases they do mandate it. I got it. But I'm not, I'm not sure I would make mandatory my goal, right? Because the army has a lot of mandatory stuff and I had to participate in a lot of it. And I tell you, when, when I found out in the order that something had become a mandatory thing, 
I got dramatically less excited about it. Even if it had like been a voluntary thing I was participating in before, if it's mandatory now, well, that's weird. Now I hate it. Right. So but I'm not sure. And there are situations where you probably want certain things to be mandatory and have some kind of control. But like overall, I think there's a lot of value in having a program that's voluntary and that everybody participates in. Right. That's a that's a better end state than everybody participating because they have to. So that's the thing is like, well, how do you get them to enjoy the training? It, it can't just be because you're giving them a high five when they come in. Right. The, the training has to be has to engage them. And, and that's another thing. And, and one of the reasons that uh, people disengage in training is that it becomes laborious. You know, they're, they're so held to the program of sets and reps as if we're all like Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind where these mathematician wizards coming up with things. And I always say, well, have you won the lottery yet? No. Okay. So you haven't gotten six numbers, right? What makes you think you're getting 36 numbers, right? Right. So you're going to be off. So holding yourself accountable to that, what you need to have is autonomy. You got to have that autonomy and that freedom to, to choose so they can en engage in it. Because I talk about relationships, relationships that are equal are the best of relationships. Anytime it tips into like slave master relationship, you know, king peasant relationship, I'm the coach, you do what I say, uh, lopsided relationships never go well. And, and so you don't want to have that. And, and that's, it goes back to the VOR, the value. That's not a value relationship if I put you under me or above. And, and that's pride. Pride is playing that you, me game. I'm above you. You are above me. Our world is filled with it. We rank everything. Top 10 this, top 10 that. And we, we tend to do that. And uh, we do that in the weight room all the time. And people call it being competitive, but it's really just being comparative. Mark, Mark says this with like a row of strongman trophies behind him. from PMC1. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these are lessons learned. Well, you can't, I, I know some of the, the things I say kind of sound weird and philosophical to other people. So you're like, you got to have some street credit. It's not like I'm all filled, you know, philosophy and no calluses. You know what I mean? Um, so that would be I will, a phenomenal t-shirt, all philosophy, no callus. Or wait, I guess we'd have to rephrase that for the t-shirt, wouldn't we? Yeah, we'll work on it. We'll work on that one. I'll, uh, I do want to offer because you we've talked about it in like concept here for a second, but I think like a brief touch point on the way you guys actually, and I don't know how similar it is to what you're doing now, but the way kind of quote unquote programming was done at the tactical athlete program, um, the what? because like the way, the way you guys did programming at tap, which I, people won't be able to see this because it's audio, but I use kind of air quotes around programming because it was not nearly as rigorous programming as I think some coaches think it might be it was it was essentially like picking a handful of exercises to fit a checklist of i want to accomplish the following like movement patterns or like metabolic demands it's it's a quick thing it's on a whiteboard it's real simple demonstrate the exercises for the group and if i recall correctly you just used and like there was there was autonomy like you said where people could choose like at this station you're going to choose between this exercise or this exercise and then the next station you're going to choose between these three whichever one you want to do but, but it was pretty bare bones in terms of like there, you wouldn't give people like a percent of one rep max. Cause you're not going to assess all these million different exercises. You're just giving them like, Hey, pick a weight where it's challenging for you to do between five and eight or between eight and 10 or whatever it is. And, and it was pretty much that workout for the week for anybody who came through. Cause everybody came through once a week. It was pretty simple. Where, where the difference got made 
was once you guys explained the workout and people ran off to go do it, you were working the room, finding out who needed to get a little bit more excitement or who was like ready to push for a new max or who was doing something cool or who was like feeling ostracized or was new to the unit and needed to be welcomed. And that's where the ma- the magic did not happen on the whiteboard or an Excel spreadsheet. The magic happened in the interpersonal react interactions on the floor. Yeah. There I was both pilot and flight attendant. You know what I mean? Put that bad boy on, on autopilot and then I'm serving peanuts. So that's, you know, make them enjoy the flight, right? See if there's anything that they need, because if you programmed it well, it ought to run itself uh, for the most part. Uh, so we, what we do is we just pick principles and it was the same principles that uh, are fundamental to people's training. Like no matter who you are, there needs to be unilateral rotational training, every training session, single arm, something, single leg, something it doesn't have to be a lot of it, but it has to be present. So if you notice on that whiteboard, there's always something that was unilateral or rotational in nature. And then we would do something that's a push or something that's a pull because we never knew where the guys were coming from. Did they just go on a ruck marsh? Did they just go on a run? Did they just come here? Did they just get divorced? Did they not sleep? And so you had to account for all of that. So I would take the stimulus and spread it over a bunch of different domains of fitness. And so if, if homeboy wanted to, to really go nuts on trap bar deadlift, I, I gave him the autonomy to do so, but I didn't demand it. Like you said, if you start to demand things, they lose the interest. So you disperse the autonomy because the whole role is a teacher. That's what you want to do. You want to teach them because I know that the, the great ones are going to go lift anyways. You know, morning PT is never going to make somebody an Olympian. Sorry, it's not going to happen. So you can't program with that in mind. You have to program with it has to be a teaching thing. And then the guys that are really diehard are going to go do it and incorporate what you taught them. And the ones that aren't so diehard are going to feel empowered and may in the future go and begin to incorporate the things that, that you taught them over time. So that was it. It's like there had to be autonomy in, the, in those programs. There had to be unilateral training. And there was always something dynamic. We, we moved load from point A to point B, or we moved ourselves from point A to point B, or we practiced the way we move. Uh, because that might be the actual, the crucial skill in today's world is the movement patterns and the movement coordination of, of, of people is getting worse and worse. So we always said that there's five pillars of fitness. And they rest on the, on the two foundations. And the five pillars are mobility, stability, strength, coordination, and belief. And belief is defined as the narrowing of one's focus to the complete absence of distraction, aka being in the zone, mental resiliency, you can train it. But uh, if, if you don't mobilize and you don't stabilize and you don't strengthen and you don't improve coordination and you don't have an assessment for it, like, and when I say assess, like we're talking mobility. Okay, one, how much mobility is needed to do the task at hand? Two, how much mobility is currently had by the individual? Three, how much mobility can we expect to enhance and at what cost? And then assess that. And then you do the same three things for stability, same three things for strength, same three things for everything else. And that's kind of how you assess and progress it. And the foundations are, you know, nutrition and recovery, because if that's not happening, it doesn't matter what you're doing. So, you know, you discipline yourself for a good bedtime. And if you don't have a I could talk to a soldier or an athlete and say, hey, like, what's your plan for training? And they're going to speak Dr. Seuss to me. You know, I got chest and tries, back and buys, abs and thighs. And that's cute. And they got on some weekly cycle, assuming that all body systems operate on a weekly cycle. You know, they make the error of cramming their physiology into their sociology, which is a problem to begin with. But they, they cram it all in there and they say, oh, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and they don't take into account uh, any mobility or stability or strength or coordination. And then you say, Okay, well, that's your plan for training. What's your plan for eating? And you got crickets, nothing, tumbleweeds blown across. 
And you, you know, your eating plan has to be as detailed as your, as your training plan, or at least it ought to be. You at least ought to have some thought concerning it. Um, and they don't. So it, at Fort Carson and, and here at Drum and stuff, we still apply those same five fundamentals, those principles. You know, we, we analyze mobility, stability, strength, coordination, and then analyze belief. And there's a variety of ways you can do that, and coaches need to develop that. But that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. What has been for your? Because I guess now, I mean, you're kind of in a position, especially for drum, where you've got a staff working with you and for you. And so, given that you now have this sort of influx of folks coming from different spaces, different backgrounds, especially on the coaching side, how have you found? I suppose where have you seen success, and where have you had some friction, and kind of taking what you know to be right and having maybe a new coach, a young coach, or even an experienced coach that has their own way of doing things and kind of getting them on board with, with your philosophy. Well, I mean, they're no different than a, an athlete or a soldier you're working with. Uh, generally anybody that gives a, an opportunity to have an autonomous space in which to create, they're going to put them be their best selves forward at work. Um, it's when they feel things are mandatory to do things this way or that way that, again, they lose interest. And so as a, as a leader, it, it's not about trying to make um, ordinary people extraordinary. It's about allowing somebody maybe with ordinary skill sets or something, the ability to create. And it's more just to be a, a guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage, you know, um, allow them to create. Because the other thing you got to look at is, even if they're doing a kind of a, a generic job of programming, it's generally going to be a better program overall than what the client would have selected for themselves, having maybe no experience or background. And so you kind of, you kind of rest on that. And, uh, but uh, over time is, you know, you can, you can teach coaches and find out what their philosophy is. And one way I get down to it is when I first meet with a coach, I ask them to write me their fitness philosophy. What is your mental approach when someone comes to you and says, can you help me? What does your brain do? And if you don't have a system, like something that you can draw a picture of, a flow chart, if you will, and, and, and write it out and hand it to me, then in a sense, you're just kind of winging it and, and throwing standard bumper stickers of physiology at people. And you really haven't nailed it down. But it's a way in which they can reflect on their own thoughts. And then we can come together and discuss their philosophy rather than discussing, you know, differences of, of, of fact or research on this or that, I'd rather hear the way they think. Um, if they're thinking more correctly and logically, it's just a matter of time before they start to discover things. Because there are some things that are only discovered and only understood with time, you know, and experience. And it, I mean, it's, it's like describing salt, right? You, 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 you can't describe salt, they just got to experience it. Or explaining somebody what it's like to have kids, you know. You just got to experience it. Yeah, Alex. <laughs> it's just, it's just something. But, uh, have you found, you because again, like being in your, in your same position at a different installation, have you found that you can translate this approach, this sort of autonomous approach well to some of the other disciplines? Like we talked about nutrition, the approach to injury management, the cognitive side of things, because I, all of these, these programs, these tactical programs get at this holistic I mean, in some cases, like in our case with the army, it is actually part of the title, but even when it's not, it's still what we're trying to get after when we have these embedded multidisciplinary teams. So I guess the question there is with folks that may not be coaches. So again, dietitians, PTs, athletic trainers, 
have you sort of gotten them on board with the same approach? And if so, what does that look like for somebody who's not a coach? Yeah. Uh, you get people on board to, to the principles of success, you know, and it's really about building relationships, even if you're a dietitian. So a dietitian can still do the value and the offering and the return appointment. And even the, the dietitian, okay, what's your plan? What's your approach? Do you look at, I look at macronutrient intake first, then I look at hydration, then I look at sleep status, then I look at eating cycles. Are we going binge eating cycles or do we have disordered eating somewhere along the line? You know, what's their thought process and flow? And it's the same thing. Can they write it out? Um, and it's just like a medical exam, they're going to have a certain protocol that they follow, a certain line of assessment. And, uh, you know, you get them to write that on there. And then you can discuss that. And, and you have to discuss the, that principle. But this is why usually when you start a, a group like that, if it's interdisciplinary, that it's, it's crucial that you begin with a mission or vision statement, that you start that off right off the bat. It, it's like there's no country without a constitution. You know, so there's really no true success unless there's a common shared vision and that common shared vision can't be assumed. It has to be written. And so you have it written down, you know, mission statements, vision statements, sayings, logos, that type of stuff. And that that's where you can have common ground. So that's what, what's key and crucial is developing that common ground, that, that culture. I think there's, there's something at the root of this that I've been, it's been rattling around in my brain and I haven't figured out quite the perfect way to articulate it yet, but maybe we can digest it together a little bit. It's just the idea of like frameworks versus templates. Um, and I'll, I'll start with an example, right? Cause I remember when I first discovered Wendler five, three, one, and I was excited cause I know how to program some stuff into an Excel spreadsheet. And now all of a sudden I have the tool to create this fantastic program just by punching in people's current maxes on a couple of lifts and it like nugs the whole thing out and it's awesome. That's a template. That's like, here's what you're going to do. We got it all built out. Execute. Awesome. And I think we, we overvalue templates because they're like simple and straightforward and you can like write it on a board and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think we spend enough time. Like I want to, I want to shift more of this towards frameworks, right? Cause if you, if you only do templates, you're going to use the templates that worked in whatever environment you got started in. So if you're a football guy, you're going to grab some football templates. If you're a cross-country guy, you're going to grab some cross-country templates, whatever. And some of that will translate and some won't. I'd rather we get better at the framework stuff where we identify those like pretty universal principles and then leave people that, that pretty extreme degree of autonomy to do whatever they want as long as it's consistent with those principles because we know it's going to work out. And I, I wish we could help. The Army is not very good at this. The Army loves really rigid templates that you can put in a flipbook and keep in your pocket and pull out. But I, I think we'll get a lot farther in this human performance space with, with frameworks that offer principles and let people figure it out. Yeah. That, and frameworks is part of that philosophy, you know, finding principles. So you find those, those principles that go far. That's, that's what it's about. And that, that should be their, their philosophy is, is finding those. So is as far as the, the frameworks go, I, you give them right, left limits. So sometimes we might say, hey, give them the three wins or the three breathing types, which is like, okay, in your workout, did you breathe a lot? <sighs> Big wind. Did you breathe a little? <sighs> Small breeze. Did you hold your breath? You know, in the same workout. So again, it's variety. We, one of the things I think is funny is that people talk about specialization, early specialization among youth athletes. 
and why the research says, oh, that's so damaging, it creates injury, it's all this stuff, and, and the research is pretty clear, the burnout's really high, and it is, but we do the same thing often in the weight room. You know, we bench press every Monday for years. We, we do these types of rigidity. Uh, we're specializing in the weight room, and sometimes under the direction of a strength coach who's specializing his particular client, you know, athlete, soldier, or be it whoever. And I, I think that that is... That is false. Uh, one of the things that is one of the 12 daily disciples of daily training is something new. Everyone's excited for something new. So when you come into a training session, do one new exercise. It might be one set of it, one set of 10, discover it. I don't care if you look around and see an exercise someone is doing and, and just try to that. You got to be constantly adding to your repertoire so that you can have that variety. I mean, if you call yourself a chef and all you do is peanut butter and jelly and mac and cheese, you're not really a good chef. So Unless you got to have really that. Well. <laughs> yeah. You got to have that variety of exercises. So you know how to cook because uh, the, the more ingredients you have, the, the more variety of, of food you're going to be able to cook. And the more people are going to come to your table. I mean, you ever have your car full of friends? You're like, Hey, where do you want to go to eat? Well, that's a cluster jam, isn't it? Everybody's got their own taste and preference. So you end up at the, at the buffet where everybody's satisfied. So in, in a sense, you got to be at, at the buffet and, and be at, in an instant, able to a, adapt to the needs of the person you're training. And so you can't do that unless you have been seeking after variety of exercises and, and developing some of your own, um, because that, that variety is what also allows them to feel special. They're like, man, I've never done this exercise before. And, and so they feel like, hey, I'm getting some great special attention rather than just common exercises. I mean, the worst thing a young coach can do when a say a brigade commander comes in and says, okay, we're going to do a walking lunge. Really? Really? Walking lunge is what you're going to come up with. First of all, brigade commander knows about walking lunge. You didn't demonstrate your expertise at all. And so you're not demonstrating your value at that point uh, by doing that. So being careful and selective and intentional with the exercises you choose. I mean, if you just choose bench press and walking lunges and sit-ups or something, everybody's going to leave going, well, I don't know why we pay that guy. So a little I bit do of a bit, I was just talking to some people about this earlier today, but like beyond even tactical space, but definitely within the tactical space, bodybuilding and powerlifting have kind of infected fitness with these like really, really like narrow approaches to how things work. Powerlifting even narrower than bodybuilding. There you go. But, but I think we have a lot of people who like, that's, those are the entry points to like everything they learn about fitness early on. And I'm not sure those are, are necessarily the best entry points because they're those are worlds where like the thing you're looking for is like very specific and very measurable and of course you're just like i don't I mean i don't remember who it was i saw somebody recently a coach say like would would you assess tactical professionals on anything other than the bench press squat and deadlift and the first thing that hit my brain was like man i don't think i would assess tactical professionals on the bench press the squat or the deadlift probably in most cases and like, cause that's not, they're not training for powerlifting. That's just not what this is. I, and I don't, I can't really see the utility of having those numbers on a graph somewhere where I can track their one rep maxes on the bench press, the squat and the deadlift. I just don't, I'm not sure what the utility is there. Yeah. Generally a coach's scope of assessment is pretty limited as well. You know, and uh, one of the marks, like, how do you tell the difference between a, a good coach and a great coach? And there's several different ways. Uh, but one of them is they have their own assessment that they have created. They have learned by experience to see a pattern and they have learned to identify that pattern and to 
focus upon it and create a, an experiment, if you will, where that pattern is manifest. Um, and if they, if they don't, then they're just not as experienced. So that's one of the little uh, things that you'll notice along the way. If you talk to any, any great strength coach that's been in the game a long time, they have their own assessments. Uh, they know what they're looking for on certain things. And so uh, that, that's something that uh, can be sought after, but learning to assess by the ounce and by the inch rather than by the pound and by the foot is, is really a, a skill also of, a, of an experienced strength coach. Do you think, so to play devil's advocate with this, because this is something that I go back and forth with a lot, especially in the tactical space, because I've now seen in a number of different scenarios, coaches coming, even experienced coaches, 15, 20 plus years coming now into this, we'll call it a new, a new frontier, right? With the tactical athlete. And we're, we're trying to figure out what that looks like. And I've seen it go both ways because to your point, you do have a level of experience where you know what to look for, you know what to assess for, and it creates a really nice model or framework that you can then operate out of to train athletes effectively. But the flip side of that, and it's almost this Occam's razor situation is you get guys who have been doing what they consider to be the right thing in the environment that was perfectly suited for that thing. And then you put them in this new environment and all of a sudden they don't have the tools or the critical thought to be able to adapt to what might be a different type of athlete. I think the classic example would be like the football coach or to Alex's point, the powerlifting coach that now comes into this environment and only knows what to look for within this box of their own experience. And it was, I forget who said it, but somebody was explaining sort of the, the stereotypical strength coach. And the question at hand was, you know, is it, is it 20 years of experience or is it one year repeated 20 times? And that's something that I kind of go back and forth with. And I'd be curious in your, to your, to your thoughts on that, because again, like you just mentioned, it can be a very powerful attribute, but I, I would say it could also be a risk where you sort of put yourself in this box, if that makes sense. It is. There's a few things like I had this like little Dr. Seuss, like limerick poem. And it's about being a student, being a constant student. And I say, a student will learn and a teacher will teach. Let your fire burn brightly a little in each. Never be so far down on your own road of thought that your thinking be found to think true what is not. Nor think yourself sage and pontificate much about this book or page or some old such and such. So have fire for each, yet the greatest of fears is one day you'll preach having not lifted in years. Stay thirsty, my friends. Keep those calluses bright. Practice what you preach if you wish to be right. Dude, that has to be, hold on, pause. Did you just off the cuff or is that written in front of you? <laughs> I, I have a book of like my saying. <laughs> we like, got it. I told you, has I, to be, I told you, keep track at home. Like, if you but there's episode, a difference, there's a difference between a one line zinger and like <laughs> green eggs and ham, which I think we just went through. There were pages to that. Pages were old, turned as yeah. we went through that. The Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own. You know what you know. You're the guy who'll decide where to go. You look up. And I, think I, got four, I think I got four or five copies of that book when I graduated high school. Oh, the place. That's the common one for high school. That is the common one for high school. That was uh, impressive. But I usually say that there's three things uh, that will measure your influence and impact as a coach. And unfortunately, sometimes as soon as somebody gets success with a hammer, they become a hammer, right? But it's education, observation, and participation. Those are the three things. And they, you need to have a foot in all of them at the same time. You know, where is your education? Uh, one of the questions I used to ask in hiring people, I would say, you know, at the end of the interview, I'd be like, you know, 
we're trying to create like a library for employees where, you know, we just kind of stash our, our books in there, just kind of like a reference library for the athletes, for the soldiers, whoever. It's like, hey, can you bring in like some of your books from, from college and, and we'll put them in here, some of your textbooks? And if he says I sold them back, I don't hire him <laughs> because he didn't value. I mean, that book's valuable. It's uh, you don't have it memorized. And it's a quick resource for research articles to look up on. It's a wonderful tool to use, um, to go back to, to refer to, uh, but just the, the mentality of, well, I've got it. This book isn't worth, I'm going to sell it back for 15 bucks because I think two trips to Taco Bell is worth more than all the knowledge in this book, you know? Um, so again, what's the last thing that you read? I think somebody ought to read something a little bit every day. And then uh, observation, this is like where you work. But even at this day, I still go to the other uh, directors in my position or strength coaches. And I observe not, not to critique, but as a learner, you know, what do they know? Uh, you know, cause I, I say like, you know, honey is sweeter cause it's been gathered from many flowers. Right. So you're going around and, and trying to see what each person does and bring that to the table. And then the last one is participation. And this one sometimes falls off the wagon. Uh, the older the coach gets, they kind of lose their own fire for it. But unless you've pursued relentlessly your own goals, you're not going to understand the mental hurdles and the little things that go along with that. I've, I've heard many times somebody say, well, this is what you'll have to do. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, initially, but not eventually, because what works initially doesn't always work eventually. And they don't know that because they haven't been down the road long enough to know that. Um, so a relentless personal pursuit will let you know how that struggle goes, because you're only as strong as your understanding of strength and your willingness to sacrifice. And if you really want to be strong and in that, that unicorn level, uh, you, you got to know the little niches. Um, so it's about getting familiar. The way I think of it like this, like the, you can have a new broom and an old broom, but what's the difference between the two? Well, the old broom is bent. Why? Because it knows the corners, you know? So it's about trying to know the corners of, of your industry. And, and that has to be a constant and the reason why it has to be a constant is because there's people that are constant with it. So if you don't keep up, you're falling out, right? It's easier to stay up than to catch up. And so education, observation, participation, and, and people always say, well, I gotta, I gotta get on that. Well, really what successful people learn how to do is they learn how to habit hard. So you need to sow habits. And if, if somebody can be a master of sowing habits, then that's when it's going to progress. So uh, so a habit of, of education, observation, participation. So that you stay current. So you're not like you were saying, Drew, you've been doing it 20 years. I always tell people, yeah, but you can be wrong for a really long time. <laughs> so exactly. Mark, I'll, I'll ask you, have you by any chance read Range by David Epstein? No, but I heard of a Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> so slightly, slightly different Epstein here. <laughs> but, uh, but like, Many of the things you've said in the last five or 10 minutes have made me think of that book. It's, it's a book about why people with like experience in numerous domains tend to be more effective than people who highly specialize in one domain. But there's a, there's a really cool concept. I was just reading the book like a month ago, so it was stuck in my brain and I, I pulled up the quote once he got me thinking about it, but he, he explains that not all environments, not all professions, not all activities necessarily are structured where experience will automatically improve performance. And so the quote is in wicked domains that lack automatic feedback, experience alone does not improve performance. Effective habits of mind are more important and they can be developed. And, and what he goes on to explain in it is that 
there are a lot of scenarios where you will learn the, the wrong lesson from experience. So like an easy one with strength and conditioning is you'll find like a program or an approach that you like, and you'll apply it to a few relatively novice athletes and it will work. And if you're not careful, you will just do that thing forever because it worked the first time, which proves to you that it works. So you're just going to stick with it and like never look at other options or find out whether it continues working or find out whether it's the most sustainable and all those things. And you've, you've kind of brought that up several times. Like that's been a theme throughout this conversation, I think is that, and I, the, the hammer example was the best, right? If you, if you get good at that one thing, you just keep on doing that thing. And it, that doesn't, that doesn't give you a wide enough repertoire to address the range of situations you might run into. And you might have missed out on a lesson, a lot of lessons you could have learned if you were willing to try other things too. Yeah, it's like gardening your land, right? I can plant a garden. I cultivate that garden, but the bigger I grow my garden, pretty soon I'm going to have to talk to my neighbor about collaborating, you know, into his, into his property and, and field. And so that's why, you know, for me personally, I, I sought that holistic education or a formal education in, in sports nutrition, as well as exercise science, as, as well as, uh, you know, I taught honors anatomy. So you're getting those, those different views. Um, I was doing shadowing hours for PA school, so as you can see from different perspectives, because they're all overlapping perspectives. And so when you, when you look at it that way, that's, that's when you can really get a good perspective. So seeking to be holistic, that's why working in an interdisciplinary field. So if you're a young strength coach out there working in a, in a tactical setting that has an interdisciplinary setup is, is the best job opportunity that, that you can have from a learning experience, not only to be with other professionals, but reliant upon them and hearing from them and, and learning from them. Like that, that's, that's crucial. I mean, I, in, in my day, like your, your first job, you, you were like sitting on a bucket somewhere and sweeping floors and hoping to learn something from the one coach that was there or something. It was, you know, but now that, that road has been blazed and that, that trail has been paved. And so, you know, these young coaches coming up now, they, they kind of got it good. They're being handed a silver spoon a little bit. I don't know if all of them would agree quite with that, but that's a matter of perspective, I think. I, I, it's interesting to hear that because I agree with you. And I've said this a lot sort of in a self-critiquing way with my own education and with, I think the education of strength coaches in general, where, and I could be wrong in misremembering here, but you don't spend much time as an up and coming strength coach learning how to be interdisciplinary. Like there's, they'll spend some ink talking about, you know, working with a dietitian or injury prevention and this, that, and the other, but I, I may have even mentioned it on this podcast with one of our guests, but I distinctly remember in my first couple of years working in this space, like sitting in meetings with, with doctors and with like, again, athletic trainers, physical therapists. And when you can't speak their language or understand where they're coming from, you do more harm to yourself than I think you do the program because now you're just kind of discrediting yourself as the strength coach who can't necessarily navigate within this total athlete space. You get so lost in the reps and sets and the programming and the gym and the floor layout and all this stuff and failing to recognize that like, if you don't know how to return somebody from an injury alongside an athletic trainer or physical therapist, like you're missing the mark. And I don't know if that's hit as hard as it should be and kind of the basic educational trajectory of your average strength coach. Uh, they pretty much ghost on that a little bit. So they, they stay pretty specific into the exercise science realm. And they just, they almost just like speak of other professions, like somebody would a Sasquatch, you know, they're out there, 
We don't know much about them, but they're out there. Yeah. You may see a dietitian in the gym. <laughs> That's right. I've seen their hair sample. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Do you, so, I mean, this is a softball question, but we've kind of stepped into this already talking about resources and education, like thinking back over the years for you, as you formed your philosophy, your vision statement, your mission statement, as a, as a tangible takeaway for people, like what are kind of your top three or five, however many you want to go through, what are your, your go-to resources for that type of stuff? For what type of stuff? The Just your favorite books, your favorite, you know, where would you point, if somebody knocked on your door today and just wanted to learn from you, where would you point them? Oh yeah. It just put you on the spot with like, what are your, Hey, what are your favorite books? Yeah, it, it really de- depends on the on the aspect in which the person's interested in learning where I would steer them. Uh, you know, definitely books that are, that are based on ideas. Uh, ideas are, are something that are powerful. Uh, you know, truth is something that permeates every field. So the principles of success run through every field. So I tend to look for those. But as far as understanding the craft, uh, I, I still love to refer to to textbooks, like I mentioned before because they'll also point me to research that I can look up and uh, go in that direction. But also at this stage of my career, you know, my peers have, have been down the road. And what you'll find with research is that research is always behind the tip of the spear. Research is not the tip of the spear because the people doing it are the tip of the spear. And uh, you're going to find people doing something that works. They don't have the time to research it and publish it for you. Uh, all they want to know is that it works and they're going to do that. And so I, I really love to at this stage of the game with the network, reach out through my network according to what my desires to learn are. You know, if I wanted to learn about you know, technical cues and, and positioning and all that of athlete, I might talk to you know, Nick Winkleman, or if I might, I wanna learn about some speed technique work, I might call my friend Maurice Green, or I might uh, talk with uh, Lauren Landau or something. And so rather, and these guys wrote books. So rather than go to their books, I, I prefer to call them now. Uh, so that, that's kind of, it's changed over the course of, of my career where I'd go to to learn these things. Uh, but I always found people to be a little more effective um, in, in speaking with me. I, I, I resonate with them a little bit better and I find that I get a little more personalized attention. So to me, it's people. And I would reference certain people according to what I wanted to learn or what my client or athlete wanted to learn about. So I'll offer some, some context here because I think that was a really genuine answer that's very consistent with what I've experienced working with Mark a couple of times, because that's when people come to, so I've sent people, I've gone to Mark to learn and I've sent people to Mark to learn. I have described him as a guru before. And I think he lives up to that. Dr. Seuss. But, but I, uh, I, I, he, he will send you to people to learn as the primary thing, right? Like when we were at Fort Carson, he would routinely send soldiers, me included over to the Olympic training center to train with people he just knew over there. Cause that was the best opportunity he could provide them. And he would, he would bring in experts. There was one platform in the middle of the gym that had been signed by all the people that had come through the space to just like interact with soldiers and train there and stuff. And there were a ton of names of people you would recognize, right? Like multiple Olympians, multiple world's strongest man kind of guys. Um, Rich Froning came through at one point. Um, like Oscar Chaplin was doing clinics in there. If people want to do Olympic lifting stuff, bobsled guys were coming through like a pretty incredible roster of humans that were there because of relationships to just offer their knowledge. And, and it's, it's kind of surreal that this happened yesterday, I think. It was either yesterday or today, honestly. I was at the gym, saw a guy at the gym wearing a 
10th combat aviation brigade t-shirt and i was like oh no way gotta ask do you know mark and it, it took him a second and mark will appreciate this but he's like wait a second yeah the the old guy <laughs> and i said yeah and he's like yeah and he's just like lights up instantly he's like that guy taught me all this stuff like he showed me this and i could change how i train and like it was it wasn't that you like taught him a fact or it wasn't that you showed him a book or anything like that. It was that like you had a personal impact on them and that's what they remember. And that's what they carry with them. And it was really cool that that happened like right before I was going to have a conversation with you. Yeah. Isn't that the greatest job satisfaction though, when you, when, when you get that, like, and you know, that's what it's about. And like I said, you find that people are the prize, you know, everybody's a gym, everybody's a somebody, anybody who's now somebody's once called a nobody by everybody. Right. So if you start to view them as, as the, the gold mine that they are, I mean, so that's why I said like, okay, would I refer him to a book on USA weightlifting or would I rather send you to Oscar Chaplin, you know, our, our two-time Olympian or whatever. Right. So um, I think that's the, the blessing now. So I don't have a, you know, go-to books to, to give you. Um, I'll, I'll take Alex's book and go look at that one. Um, <laughs> And go from there. I just haven't reached guru status. I'm still in that like lower tier where books or what I refer people to. I haven't quite achieved the level of wisdom that it takes to to guide them to people. Well, I think no, but I, I think that the answer it's a it's a great answer, quite frankly, because again, putting myself back into this seat as a young strength coach, you sort of navigate this space thinking that like that next book or that next program you buy or whatever is going to have the key that you're missing as you look to kind of treat human performance as a puzzle. And if you can get all the pieces and put them together, then you figured it out. And now, you know, the answer to, you know, elite, whatever, but again, to your point, like I, I coming through the space always heard from more experienced older coaches that it's the relationship aspect of it. It's the soft skills, it's the networking and you kind of write it off because you're like, okay, yeah, like whatever. But like, I just bought super training and I just bought West side and like, this is going to be the thing. Um, so I think it's a great answer to answer it that way. And to say like, Hey, even as a young, especially as a young coach and even especially as a student, because as a student, you're a lot more likely to have people open their doors to you because they see you as somebody who's there to learn. And so maybe that's sort of the direction to push people. in. like you said, is like, don't necessarily read the book. I mean, have like have the craft in place, but then go out and find the people and have the conversations. Cause that's where the true kind of learning and, and transformation takes place. Yeah. Drew, you ever got a great suit from Walmart? Yeah. Me neither. Well, I, I, got I a did. Great Hold on. Let me pause you mine. because. I don't know if my wife knows this or not, but I did buy the vest that I wore in my wedding at Target. So I will, I will leave that there. Well, the vest <laughs> doesn't have to be tailored. What I'm saying is like, it's not, if you've seen the pictures, it's not, but please with your point, go ahead. Hey, she still, she still loves you. Right? <laughs> not well, you, you might have some explaining to do when you get home. Yeah. Well, <laughs> But I would just say like, you know, the, the bodybuilding.com, the, those things that they, they're there to kind of start the fires, maybe some sparks and stuff. Uh, but, but they're just kind of a, a catch-all type of program. Generally, they're, they're very excessive in, in number of exercises and volume because when you don't know what the target is, you just kind of spray and pray and hope to hit it all. But uh, when you really know what you're doing, your weapon, you know, you become more like a sniper. So rather than just kind of shooting from the hip and just laying lead, 
you, you can aim and, and really be more direct. And so that's why, like, if I want to really tailor something, I'm going to go find the person um, versus just those generic programs. I, I think something that uh, coaches could keep in mind that would help them start to think about the ideas of training, uh, because I've never met uh, somebody who is very strong that didn't also have a strong mind. You know, I, I don't think you can be stupid and very strong. I don't think that's possible. Um, I think when the mind and the body, people love to separate them, you know, my mind, body, and spirit. And that's really cute. Um, that works well for academics and for structuring classes and, and that type of Excel spreadsheets. But, um, you know, since I can't really sever my spirit from my body without dying, I figured, why should I separate it intellectually in discussion either? Uh, you look at it as one whole unit. And when you realize that, uh, there's a great article. It's this one right here. Some factors modifying the expression of strength it's from 1961. But it talks about they had a group of people that would sit in a chair and, and pull on a, on a tensor meter to measure their rate of force production and peak power. And uh, they had them do it in a variety of conditions. They had them do it drunk. They had them do it with these methamphetamine like speed pills. Uh, they had them do it with yelling. They had them do it with being startled. Uh, they had them do it you know, in the morning or whatever. And uh, then they also did it with them being hypnotized. And that's what makes this kind of a cool article. And they found that when the person was hypnotized, that they were stronger than under any other condition. Even when they injected liquid adrenaline into the biceps, uh, they were stronger under hypnosis than under any other condition. And what makes it cool is that they put a, a a, I don't know if he's world-class, but he's an elite level weightlifter into the study. And what was interesting is that even under, you know, the methamphetamine type of stimulants that they were given, uh, he did not produce any more strength than he did when he was just himself. Um, however, when he was hypnotized that he possessed superhuman strength and, and could pull and not be injured, he didn't show any improvements. And they theorized that after that many years of training, he had learned to mentally overcome all the the reflexive inhibitions that are hardwired into the body. And so the researchers conclude that, you know, you're really dealing with mental inhibitions. And one of the two greatest ones are, are they're both fear. It's either fear of injury. So that fear of that self-preservation reflex, or it's the fear, social fear of not being good enough or not possessing the ability, you know, downplaying our own abilities. People really have self-doubt. And so as a coach, if you can erase the fear of injury simply by usually not even acknowledging it, um, but making the safe decisions to account for it, but then it's really that fear of not being good enough. People really have to have permission to succeed. I know that sounds weird, but they do. They just, to stand out, they don't think that they're ready for that. They don't think that that's for them. That's for other people. Um, and that's because people don't value themselves with their true value. So if, if you can value them and kind of subsidize where they're lacking and increase their, their feelings of self-value, their performance goes up automatically because that subconscious fear that says, I'm not good enough. Therefore, why should I be able to bench press this amount of weight? That's for people who are really good. I'm not really good. I'm just a nobody. I just started. And you can tell if somebody has this by asking them a question. If, if you, uh, you know, put something into kilos, like we did at Fort Carson, I had all the weights in kilos because I knew the soldiers weren't going to be able to do the math right off the top of their heads usually. And uh, so they'd often ask, hey, how much weight is that? And say, I'd say, oh, it's 225. And they would immediately tell me how much they weigh. And I would stop them. I said, well, this isn't a math equation. I didn't ask you how much you weigh. 
you know, what, what difference does it make how much you weigh? But that's evidence that they're thinking I can only do so much because of who I am. You know, what do they know? You know, I always say, well, do you know what the world record is for someone your size? And they don't. I say, well, then how do you know the standards? How do you know what you're supposed to be able to do? You know, well, they say, well, I should be able to do. And I tell them, stop shooting on yourself. You know, you don't know what you should be able to do or should not be able to do. Um, you know, and, and that might be one of the secrets personally to to my abilities that I was able to cultivate uh, maybe more in my younger years or so. But was I, I trained by myself so much that I didn't have anyone to give me standards or tell me what I should do or shouldn't do. And this was in the days before YouTube and phone filming. So I didn't have anyone to compare myself to. And I, I think that that was a blessing in hindsight. I can speak to the I can speak to the kilos thing specifically because I remember when I moved to Scotland for my master's degree. Obviously, everything is in kilos, and you would just slap the smallest plate on the end of the bar, thinking it was five pounds, and no, that was actually five kilos, and you just went up twenty pounds. And next thing you know, it's like, holy crap! So I, I totally understand what you mean. I also will comment that I guarantee Alex, somebody's going to reach out to us asking where they can find a hypnotist after this interview. <laughs> next episode of the podcast is hypnosis for human performance Let's yeah go. drew and alex get hypnotized and test their wonder at max <laughs> we did just mine several markism diamonds in that last five minutes there i think that was, that was some <laughs> solid stuff well yeah that's <laughs> there's a lot i used you you got to condense it you know i think when somebody understands something well it's going to get condensed you know, Mr. Miyagi was like, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, you know, and that, and that was, that was enough to, to teach it. So, um, you know, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets, right? Everything just hung off of these two things. They simplify it. Right? I have. So as, I mean, as we come towards kind of the hour mark and a conclusion, this, a question that I have for you is, and I think we've asked this Alex, like once or twice to some other folks, but Mark, for you, what's something you've changed your mind on in the last, we'll say five years? Another put you on the spot question. (laughs) Well, it's it's not a matter of finding a thing. It's it's figuring out which one to tell you. Um, (laughs) That's a, that's a good start. Because education, observation, participation, you're, you're kind of learning all, all things all the time. And you're constantly in a state of refinement that, there was never a, you know, I, I wonder if a, a gypsy person ever feels like they're moving or aren't they, that's just the state of their being is, is constantly moving. Um, so I don't think I ever really hung my hat and had a home on any one particular philosophy for long enough to call it my home and therefore acknowledge that I've changed. You know, it, it's like a road trip. You know, what did you change on a, every second, you know? <laughs> uh, well, then let me ask, let me ask you the flip side of that question, because the follow up one would be this, and you may have actually already touched on it, but have you found that there are maybe one or two things that you have not changed your mind on as you've kind of gone on this road trip over the last few years? Yeah, that, that enjoyment is still the principal thing for training, um, that it's a privilege, not a punishment. You know, we're not there to beat up our body. If you're beating up your body, you know, I'm going to beat it into submission. I'm going to make savage, you know, quoting all these people, make savage your body. When you make yourself your own enemy, how is that going to be a good relationship over time? Just, just answer me that. Like philosophically, it makes no sense. If you are your own enemy, 
you know, and people say, well, I just want to be better than I was yesterday. Fine. Then you're making your person yesterday, your enemy. You've got to be better than him. Well, chances are that was a good guy. Cause he got you to where you are now. He did what he had to do with what he had to do and what he had to do it with. And, and so hating your current self, hating your former self, that, that form of self self defeating mindset um, doesn't bode well over time. I haven't changed my mindset on that. I think, you know, men are that they might have joy, right? That's our, our joy in, in this life, like taking that away and then expecting to have some sort of success. You know, hard work doesn't always equal suffering. Some people can whistle while they work, you know what I mean? Um, I think Viktor Frankl did that same thing in that famous book. It's like you choose your choice to be happy. You know, you choose your, your attitude and your perspective to what you're, you're doing. And uh, I think that that's key and crucial. But uh, I've tried to enjoy my training and like, you know, there's a time, uh, there's a time and a place. And if you've treated your body right, you know, when it's time to really go and redline. Um, and some people say, oh, well, you won't have it then. I beg to differ because your body's going to be so uninhibited. Because if you constantly beat up on yourself, your body's going to start to create barriers against that. Just like overtraining syndrome, you'll start to get a you know loss of energy. You'll start to, you know, appetite, goofiness, sleep starts to get disturbed. All these things, weakness starts to occur in your performance. Uh, you'll get all those inhibitions. But if you train your body in a privilege, then your body will untie and unlock all of those. Um, it's, it's like obedience to the body. My son had a dirt bike and it had like throttle control on it. So as he got better, I could unleash more of the bike's power that was already there. He didn't know it. But as his skills got better and as he was obedient to his father, we're like, hey, don't go over there. Don't drive over here. When he showed that relationship, I unlocked more and more of his power. And that's the same as between us and our bodies as well. With that obedience and treating our body like a privilege, all those inhibitions that everyone else is fighting against uh, become unlocked. I think a lot of what people do in the weight room with repetitions is really just preparing their mind and trying to override the inhibitions that are so strong. You know, I wonder if people's workouts couldn't be shorter, you know, if the intensity couldn't rise really quickly and then fall really quickly. Why do they have to do so many reps to be strong? Mark, you talked about pointing people towards people instead of towards books, but then you successfully boiled it down to like the one book that might be relevant for basically everybody, which is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I think that's kind of a, a perfect one to talk about. Like it's, it's not about the sets and reps or the programming approach or anything. It's about what gives you purpose and, and what drives you. Uh, that was a great way to kind of wrap up your message a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, choose it. Well, Mark, I mean, you guys touched on this at the beginning, like there's a bajillion Markisms that we can now extrapolate from this and publish. So first of all, I mean, thank you for your time. Um, I appreciate it. Any, any parting thoughts or, or nuggets, any last Markisms that we left unturned from either one of you, because you've both been around them now for some time. Oh man, this, I don't know about, I don't know about uh, <laughs> Markisms, but uh, I would say, don't be in a hurry as a coach. Um, nobody likes to feel rushed. So I think that that's something that the coaches can, can, be, be content with the progress that your athlete or your client is, is demonstrating. Um, and if it doesn't match your ideal or his ideal, it doesn't mean that you're, you're failing. You know, we're so quick to criticize ourselves or to uh, criticize the program and generally we criticize what we don't know. So I'd say don't be in a hurry. Perfect. Well, again, thank you. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>